Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 214, All the Bells and Whistles. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'll be talking about a Boston inventor and entrepreneur who created the first commercially viable telephone network. Not Alexander Graham Bell, who's credited with inventing the telephone, but Edwin Thomas Holmes. Starting in the 1850s, his father Edwin Holmes created the first burglar alarm company here in Boston. Then Edwin Thomas Holmes adapted the alarm company's network of telegraph wires in the 1870s to work with the telephone switchboard he invented. Working with Alexander Graham Bell, the Holmeses turned his invention into a business and helped him build the Bell Telephone Company. But before we talk about the birth of Bell, I want to thank our latest Patreon sponsors, Ryan P. and Eric C., as well as Scott K., who made a generous one-time contribution on PayPal. Podcasts are great because there's such a wide range of subject matter available, from storytellers to grammar enthusiasts to TV show rewatches to shows about history. Even really niche stuff. Like, say, 214 episodes about really specific topics in Boston history. Even better, most podcasts are completely free to listen to. Unfortunately, they're not free to produce. We have expenses like transcription fees, storage costs, podcast media hosting, and web hosting and security. Listeners like Ryan and Eric make the show possible by giving $2, $5, or even $10 a month to offset those expenses. If you'd like to join them, just go to patreon.com hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the Support Us link. And thanks again to Ryan, Eric, Scott, and all our sponsors. Now it's time for this week's main topic. These days, we all live our lives on our smartphones. You're probably listening to my voice on your smartphone right now. The modern smartphone's so remarkable that it's easy to forget how important, complex, and advanced the landline phone network seemed just a few decades ago, even though it was really based on 19th century technology. The telephone is so old that when the businessman who turned it into a successful product got his start in electrical work, he had to make his own insulated wire. While working for his father, also an inventor and entrepreneur, he would sit out in the backyard with the huge spools of copper wire his father would buy, and he later wrote, On a cone-shaped wheel, he would put a coil of braided wire, and running it through green paint, would carry it onto a drying wheel, from which, two days later, it was again rewound into coils convenient for his men to carry. That's right, green house paint was the first electrical insulation, which sounds totally safe. His account continues, While a boy, I spent many hours of my time when free from school, painting wire in the backyard, when I would infinitely have preferred to have been playing marbles in the street with the rest of my boy companions. I think this improvised shop of my father's can justly claim to have been the first insulated wire factory. We continued to paint this cotton-covered wire ourselves until about the year 1870 when Eugene Phillips of Providence began in a very crude way making insulated wire for electrical purposes. However, the story of the telephone network doesn't begin with the backyard wire factory that closed in 1870. It begins a few years earlier, in 1852, when a Somerville minister filed an application for U.S. Patent Number 9802. To all whom it may concern, 
Be it known that I, Augustus R. Pope of Somerville, and the County of Middlesex and State of Massachusetts, have invented a new and useful or improved magnetic alarm to be applied to either a door or a window or both of a dwelling house or other building, for the purpose of giving an alarm in case of burglarious or other attempts to enter the same through said door or window by opening said door or window. When the door was opened or the window raised, it released a spring switch, which Pope called a key, and completed a circuit. And at the other end of the circuit was a bell, as described in Pope's patent application. The operation of the apparatus is as follows. While the door is closed or the window sashed down, the magnetic circuit is broken, because the spring of the key is thrown out of connection with the upper wire of the door or window frame. But as soon as the door is opened, or the window sash moved so as to allow the spring of the key to come into contact with the upper wire, or the metallic plate at the lower end thereof, the circuit will be closed, the current of electricity being made to flow through the circuit breaker and around the magnet. As soon as this takes place, the magnet becomes charged and draws the armature toward it, and thereby throws the hammer of the bell against the bell. During the movement of the armature toward the magnet, it throws or moves the circuit breaker out of connection or contact with the wire, whereby the circuit will be again broken, so as to demagnetize the magnet and allow the armature to fall back until the circuit breaker again comes in contact with the wire, and thereby closes the electric circuit and produces another blow of the hammer on the bell. Thus, a constant succession of blows of the hammer on the bell will be produced. It may sound complicated, but you've seen and probably heard bells like this a thousand times. Every time you're walking down the hallway in an older building, and you see an alarm bell mounted high on the wall, with a round bell and clapper next to it, and a box below it, you're looking at Pope's alarm bell. Many older buildings use them in fire alarms, and some of us went to high schools where a bell like that would announce that it was time to change classes. A few months after his 30th birthday, Harvard Divinity alumnus Reverend Augustus Russell Pope resigned from his church in Kingston, and a few months later, he moved to Somerville with his wife Lucy and their two daughters and two sons. He had accepted an offer to take over as the pastor of Somerville's Unitarian Church, where he started in November 1849. As a profile said, Here he continued to labor with great acceptance to the people of his charge until his death, with the exception of a few months about two years since, during which period he acted as state agent and lecturer for the Massachusetts Board of Education. Unfortunately, that death would come early, at age 39 in 1858. In the meantime, practically any moment that wasn't taken up by his pastoral duties was devoted to education. The same profile continues, He delivered many lectures before conventions of teachers for the Board of Education, in which he displayed much ingenuity. One particularly, on telegraphs, was highly commended. He edited or prepared the first educational yearbook, and wrote many articles for the Massachusetts teacher. It's hard to understand how a Unitarian minister would have gotten started with the sort of electrical experiments that led him to create the first burglar alarm, but it's entirely possible that he was building on the existing fire alarm telegraph. In a 1992 thesis on the Holmes burglar alarm, Karen Donnelly wrote, Although it is unlikely that Pope's exact catalyst will ever be known, it's difficult to imagine that he developed his system in total isolation. Somerville was located just two miles from Boston, which at the time was the major American center for telegraphic manufacturing. Also, as the nation's premier scientific center, 
Boston led in making all manner of scientific apparatus and had plenty of skilled artisans, inventors, electricians, machinists, engineers, the technological elite of the nation in residence. One of those technological elite was William Francis Channing, son of William Ellery Channing, the head of the Unitarian Church. William Francis had disappointed his father by being more interested in gadgets and technology than ideas and theology. As telegraph technology improved, he became convinced that, by a very simple application of the electromagnetic telegraph, the delays firefighters faced in identifying and locating fires may be avoided by the means of giving immediate and precise information throughout the city on any alarm. In 1851, he presented his idea to the city government, as described by Stephanie Shoro in her book, Boston on Fire. His plan called for a series of districts, each with a distinct number and a system of double wires linking signal stations to a central office. People would report fires by cranking a handle in the signal box. A notched code wheel would break or complete an electrical circuit, indicating its location by a series of dots and dashes. After verifying the box number, the central office would send out a telegraph signal that would trigger the fire bells, which would chime the number of the district, followed by the number of the box. The city accepted his proposal and installed a system of fire alarms based on Channing's design. This system remains in place today, and if you examine an older fire alarm box in Boston, you'll see the words, Fire Alarm Telegraph Station, with a number. In fact, when a fire broke out in the North End during a nationwide 911 outage in December 2018, a fast-thinking resident pulled the alarm at box number 1212. The Boston Fire Department tweeted, Fortunately, our firebox system has been operational since 1852. No injuries. Writing for Universal Hub, Adam Gaffin pointed out a historical connection. That location was the site of the first-ever fire alarm signaled by a street box for a fire around 8.25 p.m. on April 29, 1852, just one day after Boston turned on the world's first municipal firebox system. Pope would claim that his work didn't build on the fire alarm, but he knew Channing and his partners, and he even claimed to have separately developed the fire alarm system in an 1852 letter to Scientific American. Indeed, early in the autumn of 1850, without having heard of Dr. Channing's earlier movement, I prepared the outline of a similar system of fire alarms, of which I deemed myself the original inventor. I also exhibited to neighbors and friends a model which satisfactorily established the utility of the invention. Unlike an Alexander Graham Bell, Pope was by far a part-time inventor. The profile written about him only brings it up as an afterthought, saying, He was well-versed in physics and had a great talent for mechanics. He invented the electrical apparatus to alarm the inmates of a house against burglars. The burglar alarm was an afterthought in Pope's life as well. He invented the keys and the bell that we all know so well, but he did not invent a successful business plan. He quickly came to view the burglar alarm as an unwanted distraction from his work as a minister and educator, with Karen Donnelly writing, After Pope was granted his patent, he set about marketing the system. He installed the device in several houses in Somerville, some without charge, so that it might be tested and its merits made known to the community. 
He advertised in several newspapers, put a traveling salesman into the field, and in 1856, he exhibited his new system at the fair of the Mechanics Charitable Association of Boston, where he received a diploma and a silver medal. Although he installed the system in a large boot and shoe factory near Boston, commercial success eluded him. Pope's duties as a clergyman would not permit him to do more, and being very much out of health, he found it necessary to dispose of his patent. When an offer came along in 1857, he was happy to take it. Businessman Edwin Holmes, as his son Edwin Thomas Holmes would later write in the book A Wonderful Fifteen Years, in the year of the Great Financial Panic of 1857, chanced upon a man by the name of Pope, who had invented a device which at the opening of a door or window in a house would ring a bell in the owner's sleeping room. The idea appealed to Mr. Holmes, who promptly bought the patent and as electrical bells and other equipment were necessary. He paid $8,000 in securities and about $1,500 in cash for Pope's patent and hardware, and then he sat down to try to figure out what to do with it. At the time, Edwin Holmes was in his late 30s, and along with his brother operated a shop that his son would call a Yankee Notion Store, or what is now known as the Notion Department, in all of our large stores. Of course, the younger Holmes wrote that in 1917, and calling it a notion department didn't really help me much. I looked it up, and the first definition I could find online was a store selling haberdashery, which was super helpful. After a little more research, I guess notions are all the things used in sewing and tailoring other than the cloth itself. Buttons, snaps, spools of thread and such. And Yankee notions were specifically American-made goods. So Mr. Holmes was selling American-made sewing supplies at a shop at 17 Tremont Row. Tremont Row also bears a bit of explanation because it no longer exists on a map of Boston. Depending on when you looked and who you asked, Tremont Row was a retail center along what's now Cambridge Street and Tremont Street, sort of between the Kinsale Restaurant and King's Chapel. Of course, that was before Government Center existed, so there was a warren of narrow streets like Brattle, Cornhill, and Exchange Place, roughly where City Hall now stands. Along Tremont Row, there were artists and auctioneers, publishers and shoemakers, and eventually photography studios. 17 Tremont Row, where the home store was, had been home to an artist, a piano teacher, and a music publisher before Holmes moved in, and it was the headquarters for John Harrington and Company, who specialized in hoop skirts and corsets after Holmes moved out. Speaking of hoop skirts, those elaborate garments have been growing in size and complexity for years, and they peaked in the late 1850s or early 1860s. Whether or not you know exactly what they are, you've seen a hoop skirt in any movie set during the Civil War. Just picture Vivian Lee as Scarlett O'Hara, greeting her suitors on the steps of Tara, and the first act of Gone with the Wind. Edwin Holmes was an expert in making the wire armatures that formed the structure of a hoop skirt. And as Edwin Thomas points out, that knowledge came in useful when he got into the electrical device business. It may be surprising to know that the only insulated wire to be had at this period was a very fine copper wire wound with silk, such as was used for the making of magnets and the various telegraph instruments. The first problem presenting itself, therefore, was to procure a large-size insulated wire. And it was just here that the hoop skirt experience of Mr. Holmes's earlier days became useful, 
for after buying a number 18 bare copper wire, he would take it to a factory where the steel wire for hoop skirts was braided with cotton, and here have his copper wire covered in a similar fashion. It was, of course, those cotton-wrapped copper wires that Edwin Thomas would then paint with greenhouse paint and wind up to dry in the family's backyard. Before the alarm business got so big that it needed a backyard wire factory, Edwin Sr. would have to figure out a way to make the burglar alarm make some money. His wife Eliza was confident, writing, I feel that you will make $10,000 out of that burglar alarm patent. In hopes of proving her right, Edwin took a couple of steps. First, he went to the shop at 109 Court Street, just down the block from his own shop and now a part of City Hall Plaza. There, in the storefront where Alexander Graham Bell's telephone would be tested and first demonstrated, was Charles Williams' shop. Williams was one of the first manufacturers of electrical devices in the country. In Holmes' initial sales attempts, it had been hard to convince home and business owners that an electrical gizmo could warn them of a break-in, so he turned to Williams to build a prototype. Edwin Thomas's book says that to overcome this skepticism, Edwin Sr. had a small housemaid with a door in front, a window on either side, a battery inside, and a full-size bell on top. And this he carried from store to store to demonstrate the truth of his assertions. This little house, now acting as a clock case, can be seen on my present office mantle. Even then, men doubted that the opening of the door really did ring the bell. The small house had an 8-inch by 10-inch footprint, and it stood about 2 feet tall including the alarm internals and a 7-inch tall bell on top. With the prototype in hand, Edwin Holmes implemented step two of his plan, moving to New York City. In her thesis, Karen Donnelly explains that at the time, the crime rate was escalating in New York, and the public perception of crime was escalating even faster. The changes wrought by urbanization presented opportunity for criminals and compounded the problem of controlling them. In 1789, New York had 33,000 inhabitants and was protected by only 32 night watchmen and fewer daytime constables and marshals. By 1843, the population was estimated at 350,000 permanent residents and 50,000 transients. The city employed 34 constables, 100 marshals, and 1,012 watchmen to serve this tremendously increased population. Although crime and disorder were not new, there was a change in the perception of these issues between 1800 and 1860. David R. Johnson points out that during the first three decades of the century, criminal behavior increasingly seemed to disturb the prevailing tranquility of urban society. In the next three decades, many people became convinced that crime was about to undermine their society. Edwin Holmes apparently agreed, with his son Edwin Thomas writing a half-century later, Mr. Holmes quickly made up his mind that all the burglars there were in the country were in New York, and so decided to bring his family here, which he did in 1859, locating in Brooklyn, where most New England people settled, possibly feeling safer to be near Henry Ward Beecher's church. As the elder Holmes began trying to sell his burglar alarm in New York, he focused on wealthy homeowners and the owners of cash-rich businesses, who would think that they were ripe for the picking. As the purveyor of a wacky-seeming new gadget, he had trouble getting audiences with many of them at first. 
While sales started slowly, Holmes also began making some improvements to the burglar alarm system to make it more effective, as Edwin Jr. describes. The original patent as purchased by Mr. Holmes simply covered the ringing of a bell upon the opening of any window or door in the lower part of the house. Next was introduced an indicator which, when the alarm was set at night, would designate the room in which a window had been left open when the house was closed or, in case of an alarm, show in which room an opening had been made. Following the indicator improvement, a clock attachment was next devised which would disconnect the alarm in the morning so that the bell would not ring when the servants went down. And later, this same clock, while switching off the alarm, would also ring in the servants' quarters another bell, which acted as an alarm clock. With these improvements, Holmes began making some sales, which means that this is probably about the time when Edwin Thomas began painting cotton-coated wires to insulate them in his father's backyard manufactory. The springs and small parts that made up the keys for windows and doors were sourced from a shop at Chatham Square, in what's now New York's Chinatown. However, all the electrical components of the burglar alarms that were being sold in New York were being manufactured back in Boston. Throughout this period, Holmes continued to contract with Charles Williams back on Court Street in Boston to make the electronic bells that made his system tick. There was one final improvement that was needed to drive sales through the roof. Central monitoring. Ringing a bell in the owner's bedroom is one thing, but what if I told you that a room full of security guards could listen for your alarm from a headquarters located outside your home? Now how much would you pay? In his 1917 book, Edwin Thomas described the development. In the year 1872, a plan for an electric-lined cabinet to cover or surround a jeweler's safe was thought out, developed, and patented. And then, instead of connecting these with a bell on the outside of the building, to run the wires into a central office, equipped with men day and night, who in case of an alarm could be instantly dispatched to learn the cause of the alarm. The value of this was quickly realized by all the jewelers of Maiden Lane. At the same time, ways for treating and protecting a bank vault were also worked out, and were quickly recognized by bank officers. The company's top-floor office, at 194 Broadway in Manhattan, was soon connected by a tangled riot of wires to banks and jewelers all over the city. That same year, the younger Holmes was pressed into service. His father had sent Edwin Thomas Holmes back to Boston in 1869. As the business model came together, in 1872, I also opened a central office in Boston at the same time the one was being opened at 194 Broadway in New York. Six months later, this Boston office had 13 banks and several jewelers' establishments connected with it. Edwin Thomas got the Boston office open at 342 Washington Street just in time for it to witness one of the great calamities in Boston history. The younger Edwin wrote, it was on the night of November 9th, 1872, when living in Brookline, that I was awakened to be told that there was a big fire raging down in the village. Dressing hastily and without a collar or tie, I hurried to the center of the town, where I was told that Boston was burning up. On that Saturday evening in 1872, a fire broke out in the basement of a warehouse on Summer Street in what's now Boston's financial district. It became known as Boston's Great Fire, which we've talked about in passing, and one of these days we'll do a full episode about it. Edwin Thomas continues, 
I boarded a train about to leave for Boston, and all that night and until noon the following Sunday, I was in the streets of Boston. As the fire approached our newly equipped office, I directed everything to be removed, with the exception of our galvanometer case, which, owing to the hundreds of wires connected with it, I told them not to touch until I said so. When falling bricks from the burning building in the rear of us broke the windows in our own office, however, I directed that all the wires be cut and the case removed. Later, it proved that this was unnecessary, for with the exception of the broken windows, no damage was done to our office. On the following Sunday morning, I witnessed the contents of our new central office, so needlessly uprooted, piled on the steps of the old courthouse. When the smoke cleared 12 hours after the fire started, a vast swath of 65 acres at the heart of the city had been completely destroyed. The fire had been stopped nearly on the doorstep of Old South Meeting House, just a few doors down from Homes Protection at 342 Washington. The office had been spared, but only barely. With so much of the city being replaced by new construction, it was a perfect time to add burglar alarms to the new buildings. After the fire, Holmes said that they had about 40 or 50 wires to replace, but that number soon multiplied. Over the next few years, Holmes' alarms became ubiquitous in banks, jewelry shops, and other cash businesses. A few years later, Edwin Thomas Holmes was paying a visit to the shop of Charles Williams, where the electrical components for their alarms had been manufactured for almost 20 years. And there, he stumbled into the next chapter in his life story. In May 1877, when I was located in Boston, and on one of my frequent visits to Williams' shop, I found him standing and helloing into a box that stood on the top of the book rack in the corner of his desk in his little shop office. Although his back was turned towards me, he realized that someone was behind him, and turning, he saw me and laughed. For heaven's sake, Williams, what have you got in that box? I said. Oh, he replied, that is what that fellow out at Watson's bench calls a telephone. Watson, whose bench it was, was Thomas A. Watson, whom Alexander Graham Bell famously placed the first ever phone call to less than a year earlier, at that same Court Street shop, saying, Mr. Watson, come here. I want to see you. The development of the telephone in Boston is another topic that deserves its own episode at some point, but by the time Edwin Thomas Holmes got his first glimpse of the device, it was not yet a commercial success. Bell had given many public demonstrations of the new device, including at the Centennial Exposition in Philly. But just a few months before, Western Union had declined to buy his telephone patent, asking, What use could this company make of an electrical toy? That was basically how Holmes reacted as well, saying, Is that the instrument that I've seen squibs in the paper about, saying that someone was attempting to talk over a wire, in fact had talked from one point to another? Yes, he said. He and Watson have been working away at it for some time. At that time, a telephone was strictly a point-to-point device. A wire would be strung between two buildings. In this case, Charles Williams' shop on Court Street, and his home in Somerville. A telephone was connected to either end of the wire, consisting of a 6 by 6 by 10 inch box with a hole in one end. When the other person was on the line, you would shout into the hole, 
then quickly turn your head and hold your ear up to the hole to hear the response. Each telephone could only be connected to one other telephone, making its usefulness pretty limited. Edwin Thomas's curiosity was piqued, and he started hanging around the Williams shop and watching development progress on telephone research. Eventually, he became convinced that he could provide the same commercial success for the telephone that his father had provided for the burglar alarm, taking a good idea and working out how to turn it into a product. Holmes knew that for the telephone to be successful, a customer's device had to be able to connect to any other customer. It needed to be a one-to-many device, not one-to-one. He also knew that he already had the backbone for that system at 342 Washington Street, with its hundreds of wires leading out in every direction. In A Wonderful 50 Years, he wrote, After watching things for some time, I said one day to Mr. Hubbard, If you succeed in getting two or three of those things to work well and will lend them to me, I will show them to Boston. Gardner Hubbard was a principal investor in Alexander Graham Bell's research. Show them to Boston, he repeated. How will you do that? Well, I said, I have a central office down at 342 Washington Street, from which I have individual wires running the most of the banks, many jeweler's shops, and other stores. I can ring a bell in a bank from my office, and the bank can in return ring one in my office by using switches. And by giving a prearranged signal to the exchange bank, both of us could throw a switch which would put the telephones in circuit and we could talk together. If you will send me three instruments, I could put another in the Hyden Leather Bank, and after I had gotten Mr. Binion at the exchange bank, I could call Mr. Ripley at the Hyden Leather Bank and tell him that Mr. Binion wished to talk with him. And with the third telephone in circuit at my office, I could hear that their conversation was successful. After looking at me with great surprise and much interest, Hubbard slapped me on the back and said, I will do it. Get your switches and other things ready. If you've watched enough old movies and newsreels, you've probably seen telephone operators at work in front of a switchboard. Long distance. Thank you. I am sorry, they do not answer. I will call you in about 20 minutes. Mr. Brown is not expected until tomorrow. Will you speak with anyone else? If you've wondered why it was called a switchboard, it's because the one that Edwin Thomas Holmes first assembled in his Washington Street shop was made out of a three-foot-long piece of board with switches on it. He wired it up so at the flip of a switch, the wires from his burglar alarms would form a circuit with the switchboard. Then on the board itself were a series of plugs and patch cables that would allow him to connect the alarm cable from any customer's business to the cable from any other business. He bolted this switchboard to the wall of his office, then put up a small shelf that would hold a 10-inch telephone. Alexander Graham Bell sent over the telephones with serial numbers 6, 7, and 8, and he put one on his shelf, and the other two in the Exchange National Bank and the Hyden Leather Bank. With this setup, a banker at the Exchange could call up Holmes' office and ask to be connected with the Hyden Leather then Holmes could call over to make sure that Hyden Leather was available before connecting the two directly. They tested it, and it worked. Bell sent over two more phones, which Holmes put into two more banks, and then he called the press. One of the Boston papers wrote, The Telephone Another successful series of experiments with the telephone was made yesterday afternoon at the rooms of Professor Holmes, electrician, on Washington Street. 
At this place, Mr. T.M. Carter played several cornet solos, which were heard distinctly at the rooms of Messrs. Brewster, Bassett & Company on Congress Street, at a branch office on Court Street, and at Somerville. In response, Mrs. Williams sang several songs in Somerville, which were plainly heard at the three points above mentioned in this city. And singing from the Court Street office was heard in all other places. Conversation was also carried on between the several points, connected with perfect ease. In his 1910 History of the Telephone, Herbert Casson seemed less than impressed with Holmes's invention. The little shelf with its five telephones was no more like the marvelous exchanges of today than a canoe is like a Cunard liner. But it was unquestionably the first place where several telephone wires came together and could be united. Nevertheless, that demonstration proved the viability of the telephone, and Edwin Thomas Holmes came on board as the sixth employee of the Bell Telephone Association. He already had wires in hundreds of homes and businesses, and he started offering a service where the customer could use their telephone during the day, then switch the wire over to alarm service at night, when they didn't need the phone anyway. He would lease the telephones from Bell for $10 per year per phone and charge each customer $5 a month. Holmes started advertising, saying, The above company proposes and is now prepared to establish direct telephonic communication between every business house in the city. As the customer base grew, Holmes set his mind to solving the new problems that arose, writing, I began by running four or five circuits in different directions from my office, each circuit having two wires, on one of which I expected to cut in about 25 telephones, and from the other I ran a wire called by telegraph men a leg, into the store through a press knob, and to ground. Pressing the knob released a drop, which when falling, called the central office operator's attention to the phone of that circuit. We had at this time gotten the hand telephones one of which was to be placed alongside the shipping clerk's desk in the store, and here came the first great obstacle. We could not talk through all the telephones, and how are we going to cut them out of the circuit when not in use? No such situation as this had arisen before, and how is it going to be met? My thinking hours had to be increased, and they ran into the small hours of the morning. After several days, at about 2 a.m., the brilliant thought came to me. Its own weight. At 4 a.m., I felt that I had really solved the question and went to bed. In the morning, I hastened to William's shop and, meeting Williams, said, I've got it. I've got it, sure. Its own weight will do it. Whereupon a backboard was made and a long hook fastened to the board in the middle so that it would work like a child's teeter. It had a fork at the top end to hold the phone and two connecting plates at the bottom which, when the phone was in the receptacle, would by its own weight close the cutout switch at the bottom. This was the first cutout telephone switch ever made, and in similar form it has been part of every telephone since. Holmes had invented hanging up, and it was part of every telephone, until the touchscreen was invented. He also invented, or rather hired, the first telephone operator. For most of the era when telephone operators were needed, women served as operators. But the first one was a teenage boy named Frank Moore. He happened to work in the home's office as an assistant, so he was pressed into service. Soon, 
he moved on to other positions at the company, but he was replaced by another boy, and then another, and before long, the Holmes company was employing five or six teenage boys at a time. They were noisy, they were rude to the customers, and they started roughhousing in the office. As Edwin Thomas wrote, he quickly found a solution. The thought came one day, why not have girls? I immediately engaged one young lady, the first female telephone operator. Her presence at once changed the situation in the room, and from that time on, we engaged only girls for our switchboard work. That first woman was Emma Nutt, an 18-year-old telegraph operator. Customers loved her calm demeanor and smooth talking, and a few hours later, her sister Stella became the second woman to work as an operator. There were lots of women in need of work, and you didn't have to pay women very much, so it was a bargain compared to paying teenage boys. Women were also seen as having less power, at least before the 1919 telephone operators' strike, which is probably a topic for a different show. So as Mass Moments notes, It may have been a desirable job, but it was not an easy one. Telephone companies had strict rules for all aspects of operators' behavior on the job. Merely to get the job, a woman had to pass height, weight, and arm length tests to ensure that she could work in the tight quarters afforded switchboard operators. Operators had to sit with perfect posture for long hours in straight-back chairs. They were not permitted to communicate with each other. They were to respond quickly, efficiently, and patiently, even when dealing with the most irascible customers. Nevertheless, women remained ubiquitous at telephone switchboards until direct dialing became common starting in the 1940s, allowing customers to dial their own phone numbers rather than telling an operator who they wanted to talk to. Emma herself would work as an operator for over 30 years, though her sister Stella lasted only a few months. Back in New York, Edwin Sr. adapted most of Edwin Thomas's improvements. Before the end of 1878, he was selected as the president of the Bell Telephone Company. Edwin Thomas would go back to New York in 1882 and take over a new incarnation of home security. But not before he also invented party lines, which far outlived the switch from live operators to direct dial, becoming the oldest piece of telecommunications technology that I can personally remember. In 1879, Edwin Thomas remembered, It was at this time that I had 144 subscribers to my local exchange. Acting under instructions from Mr. Hubbard to make it cheap, I had put three and four subscribers on a single wire. And to call a party, you had to strike his signal on his bell. One, 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 etc. There are exchanges today working in the same way. As far as I know, there are no more party lines in America, but they still existed when I was in elementary school in deepest Appalachia in the 1980s. Our house shared a phone line with the Wilhelms just up the road. If the phone gave a single ring, 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 it meant the call was for us. But if it gave a double ring, 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 that meant that the call was for the Wilhelms. Likewise, if you picked up the receiver to make a call, you'd sometimes hear that someone at the Wilhelm house was already speaking. 
so you just quietly set the receiver down and try again later. If they were still talking when you tried again, you might gently clear your throat to get Sue Wilhelm's attention and ask her if she could wrap up and clear the line soon, so you could make a call. I've always known that party lines were primitive compared to the phones we all use now, but I didn't know that they were invented in Boston all the way back in 1879. To learn more about how two generations of the Holmes family made the burglar alarm and the telephone into viable products, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 214. I'll have a link to Edwin Thomas Holmes's book, 50 Wonderful Years, Herbert Casson's 1910 History of the Telephone, and Karen Donnelly's 1992 thesis about the Holmes burglar alarm. I'll also include illustrations showing Edwin Thomas painting wire in the backyard, the first telephone switchboard, and the forest of wires leading from the roof of 342 Washington Street. If you'd like to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. We're in all your favorite podcast apps, including Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, and many more. You can stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History podcast. Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts is still the most popular podcast app. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line. We'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. <laughs> <laughs>